sliding past 7 o'clock. Huge show on tap for you once again. Been having a lot of these lately. It's Iron Sports, 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, did you think a week ago or even two weeks ago that we'd be sitting here on a Monday night about to do the show with the Warriors having their backs to the wall three games to one? Well, we knew that the U.S. Open golf, and we were going to side a champion in golf this week. But I didn't know if we were going to decide tonight perhaps the champion in basketball and on uh, Wednesday night the champion in hockey. So this is the champion week of American sports to get three, the golf cha- U.S. golf, national golf champion, hockey, and basketball. So it's a, it's a rare week when you can get three champions decided and uh, – no, I, I, I was, of course, I'm surprised by what's happened in the, in the series. And, but we never know it's 3-1. And, uh, I'm just pumped for tonight. I'm pumped for this entire week and extremely excited to see Kevin Durant come back tonight and see if the Warriors can, uh, redeem themselves from blowing a 3-1 lead three years ago and seeing if they can come back and be the, the one that comes back from 3-1 and wins it, that it, title. It's going to be interesting to see that happens at tonight, 9 o'clock on ABC. Um, Ira, you were all over this week, but before we get to that, we're going to have Alex Reamer joining us. He's been on the show before. He's a great guest. Tell us about Alex. Um, Alex is one of the uh, talk show hosts in WEI Radio in Boston. He's uh, has a has one of the top sta- um, shows that, uh, on that station. Uh, he's going to give us the pulse of the Bruins. Uh, I, I'm out here in LA. I'm going to a bar called Sunny McLean's. There's 300 people there on Sunday. Uh, I think across the country, the Boston fans are coming out. I mean, they are definitely the city that is potentially going to win the hockey championship, the baseball championship, the football championship. It is great to be a Boston fan. And we're certainly going to get his, uh, his uh, thoughts about David Ortiz, who was uh, who was um, shot on Sunday. Uh, it looks like just somebody, a random person, decided to to shoot. And uh, hopefully, I mean, he is definitely he's recovering and he's flying back to Boston. Uh, he's a legend and an icon in the town. And we'll get his thoughts on David Ortiz, and it's certainly a mobilizing force. David Ortiz was very important when there was the Boston Marathon bombing to, to sort of bring the community together. He's a champion, one of the greatest Red Sox to ever play, Just, and, and more than a more than a baseball player, he is the kind of guy that I think that in his Dominican Republic and in Boston is just uh, transcends sports. No, you know, he does. And I do think there's a lot more that's going to come out of this David Ortiz story than we know right now. If you've seen the video, it doesn't appear to be a robbery attempt. This was a hit. <laughs> I mean, there's no other way around that. So there's got to be some underlying details here that I'm sure will come out in the weeks as we go forward. Speaking of going forward, let's go back real quick. Ira, you had a busy week racking up the uh, frequent flyer miles. Once again, where you been? Well, I went to both the Warriors games on Wednesday and Friday. Uh, and then I went to my first time at Oracle Park. I went to the Giants game. Uh, to it was eight, people know it as AT and T Park, but it's where the San Francisco Giants play. They changed it to Oracle a couple of years ago, and uh, and everyone considers it one of the best stadiums to go to in baseball. I've never been there, and I saw them play the Dodgers, so it was exciting to go to a game and see that on Saturday. So I got uh, two two basketball games and a baseball game for this week. All right, let's talk about uh, NBA. Let's get into it. Like we said. Raptors looking great. They've got uh, the you know the, the reigning champs with their backs to the wall, three to one. This series might be over in just a few hours. But Ira, tell us about uh, the, the game one that you took in the other day. Well, it, it was interesting the fact that I go up there and I, I flew up. It's easy to fly from LA to. 
to Oakland because the arena sits right next to the airport. So you can actually just fly into the airport. It's if the Uber ride takes a minute over. I usually go to this hotel, uh, like sit at this hotel for a little bit to you know with my, and just leave my computer bag or whatever because I flew back to, that night and uh, and then just walk from the hotel to the game. Uh, and it's so easy to go into. And I like to get there early, see the warm ups uh, and and everything. Um, it was. Uh, exciting. These warms a little different. Usually, uh, Steph comes out first, then Durant comes out, and then uh, and then Clay comes out. Everybody knew Durant was going to play, not play, but there was an issue whether Clay uh, Thompson with his hamstring was going to play or not. It was still a game time decision. And then right after Curry came out, it was like no activity whatsoever. Then Draymond Green came out. It was pretty evident that Clay wasn't going to play, and, and neither did did Looney. And when when word got around to the arena that he wasn't going to play. Um, it was uh, it was definitely that it, you could just sense it that it, it was deflated, and I didn't notice as many people before the game anyway. I mean, there was there was this, there was a, a sense of fear, you know, like the, the the Warrior fans are very concerned. They they knew this was crucial. They're down two one. They're uh, uh, they're uh, they're down two one, and it, it was one one, and then they uh, they they just they weren't confident about this game. Uh, but it was like. This could be the final, the final two games at Oracle because uh, they're moving to the Chase Center next year. So you had all that aspect of the stadium being, they're not tearing it down, but the Warriors. And the Warriors, it's weird. The Warriors are an Oakland team. And when you look at Oakland, San Francisco, they're very close to each other. They're only 10, without traffic, like 10, 15 minutes apart from each other. But there are two different types of towns. They call it the Bay Area, but it is definitely a distinction uh, between, it's almost like New Jersey, New York, that type of thing. Uh, and I think there's a lot of fans that won't, might not travel with the Warriors to go to San Francisco that, that just pure, that view the Warriors as the Oakland team. And if they're playing in San Francisco, they're no longer that Oakland team. So I think the fans were a little uh, disappointed. Uh, one thing about the tickets, uh, it was the most, the last, the two games I went to were the most expensive tickets I've ever seen. I've been going to Warrior Games now for since my fifth year for the NBA Finals. And clearly it was the, uh, Toronto fans driving the price up. Uh, we saw in the game four the fact that there were two, three thousand Toronto fans there. Uh, this is not just when Cleveland played, maybe a hundred Cleveland fans showed up. Uh, that might be an understatement, but it didn't seem like anyone did. After they won game four, it was so they go up 3 1. Uh, about 3,000 fans were in the bottom of the bowl singing, Oh, Canada, their Crazy. songs. Uh, it was it was amazing. I mean, I took these videos. People said, "Wait, were you in Toronto?" And I go, "No, this was an Oracle." So many <laughs> Toronto fans, and, and the weird thing is that it's not just Toronto; it's Vancouver fans. I mean, the whole country. If you just happen to have some Canadian blood in you, Toronto's your team. So it's like if America competed in say hockey, and there's only one, <laughs> there's only one team in America that played hockey. That would be like everyone would be for the Boston Bruins or something like that. So that was that that atmosphere. But um, it was uh, it was it was a very interesting game, marred by a couple things. Is first that Kyle Lowry went into the stands. Uh, Mark Stevens and an owner of the Warriors, uh, Lowry died for a ball, but Mark Stevens pushed him. At first, you heard about this fan, you thought, oh, another fan in the front row does something. But actually, he was an owner, and uh, and then he's been subsequently suspended for a year, fined five hundred thousand. I do think a little bit, we talked about last week about Drake. I think that's what sort of, that, about the fact that these people in the front row are involved. They, have, they want to have the rights of, uh, of being whatever they are in the front row and, and all the, 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 the wristbands. They can walk anywhere, but they have no responsibilities. Uh, if, they, if they want to be part of the team, that's one thing, but then you can't yell at the players, you'll get a technical. And it seems like Drake pushed that envelope 
and uh, he was supposedly privately criticized, but not publicly. And now you have an owner which went by far uh, worse than, than what Drake did. And I, he agreed. I think he should be suspended. You can't. There's no reason for an owner to be or any fan to be shoving a player. Um, and uh, um, so he was suspended for a year. And then the other story, which actually made more noise, was that noise was that uh, Beyonce and the uh, Warriors' wife. Uh, supposedly had a tiff, but there was no tiff at all. Um, I guess they've been longtime friends, and, and that was a story on, on the Internet that was like the number one story. Everyone who's not big NBA fans were asking about that question. But uh, going into this game, I felt like there's no Clay Thompson, there's no Kevin Durant, there's no Kevon Loney. I really felt like Curry's going to have to score 50 points, and he almost did. He yeah, 40 he, he almost did. But I thought Cousins would score 25, Draymond would have to score 25, um, and uh, but um, it was, again, the Raptors jumped out in the first quarter, 36-29. They won every quarter of the game. They won six of the eight quarters in Toronto. That's one of the stories about this series. Besides that 18-0 run in that third quarter, really the Raptors have controlled this entire series. Uh, the Warriors started Livingston, Curry, Cousins, Green, and Iguodala. Um, when I'm saying these names, they're not really scorers. I mean, Curry's the scorer. Cousins is, is a scorer, but not now. And Iguodala and Livingston come off the bench, and um, and Curry went off to a fast start. I mean, this is a game where people said, oh, now Steph Curry has to feel like how would everyone else has to deal with. You don't have any other stars. You don't have your <laughs> Thompson. You don't have Durant. You're going to be like every other star player in the NBA, and he came through. Um, the one thing that, that, that hurt the Warriors was Siakam was destroying Livingston on defense. He seemed to be scoring at will, and uh, Danny Green, who had been playing poorly the whole series, started draining threes. Uh, but and Leonard, who only had two points most of the first quarter, but at the end of the quarter he just decided to dunk on McKinney and and take the lead. And then it happened in the second quarter also. The Warriors started the Warriors did not. They started a lineup with Livingston, Cook, Adala, Jericho, and Cousins. I mean, just a mess of a lineup. Again, the the Warriors looked pathetic on defense. It seemed like dunk after dunk. Kyle Lowry was draining threes. The Raptors ended up being up eight at halftime. The Warriors were shooting five for nineteen from threes. Curry had twenty five points. He was playing great, but just no scoring from anyone else. And then in that third quarter, um, uh, that this is the third quarter. You're like you're waiting for the Warriors to come back. You're waiting for them to come. They're they're they're, they're down eight, but they're going to make their run. Um, there was no run. Um, they the, the the Warriors just dominated them again in that quarter, and uh, they ended up opening up a 14 point lead. Um, and it seemed like what and the topic of the game. It's weird. I, I I'm at the game and then I watch the game, and it seemed like every time the Warriors scored. The Raptors had a response. So there was no 18 nothing run. Iguodala hits a three to cut it to seven, but Lowry for Toronto hits a three. Curry makes a three to cut it eight, but Van Fleet for Toronto comes back and hits a three. Curry makes a two, Leonard comes back. And they never, I went and looked at the play-by-play. The Warriors never even made more than two baskets in a row. And then at the end of the quarter, Danny Green made back-to-back threes. The Warriors go into the fourth quarter down 13. And at this time, Curry had 40 points. And everyone's like saying, I mean, this is, is he going to, a miracle, but they just did it. I mean, it was just, it was, a, they ended up having a 17 point lead with five minutes to go. Uh, and the bench players were into the end of the game. Um, it was interesting in this game, it was one of the only games the Warriors have just, the Raptors have decided to just say, we're going to play seven guys. We're just going to play in seven. Siakam was, and every Raptor shot 50% or better. Siakam, eight for 16 with 18 points. And one other thing as I go through these guys, none of them were lottery picks. We're having a draft next week. He was a 27th pick for New Mexico State. Kawhi Leonard, 9 for 17, 30 points, 7 rebounds, 6 assists. 
he was the 15th pick from San Diego State who was drafted by Indiana and traded to them. Yeah. Gasol, 6 for 11, 17.17 runs. He was the 48th pick by the Lakers who, when he was traded for his brother, people thought it was the worst trade in NBA history. Lowry was, was 8 for 16, 5 for 9 for 3, had one of his, his best game by far this the playoffs. 23 points, 9 assists. He's the 24th pick. And Danny Green, 6 for 10, 18 points, second round pick, uh, 46th pick in the draft from UNC. Abaka had six points, but six blocks. He was the 24th pick. And Van Fleet, who had 11 points, was three for six, was undrafted. So here I just named all seven guys. None of them drafted. I mean, now they're all drafted, but no lottery picks having this great game. And for the Warriors, Curry had 47 points, 14 for 31. But Cousins was terrible, one for seven for four points. I said last week what a key. He, you know, he, had, he had that one big game uh, in game two, but just he did play terrible. And the Warriors... They just, their defense, they've been, this is the third straight game they scored 109 points in, but they let the Raptors shoot 52%, 44% from threes. The Warriors, the Raptors made 20 of 21 free throws, and the Warriors just couldn't shoot, couldn't match them, and it was a, it's a bad loss. And that, you know, it was, so they go down 2-1 in a series. So that was, that was definitely on Wednesday. Uh, when we were, when I was leaving that arena, the Warrior fans were, as much, they were nervous going into the game, and they were more nervous coming out of that game. 718, it's Ira on Sports. This is 95.9, the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Uh, 745, Alex Reamer from WEEI Boston joins us. Going to be uh, always fun, always a lot of fun with him. Um, so so then, Ira, you know, we move on to uh, Game 4. And uh, it's like we've been saying, the entire game, I'm waiting for the Warriors to go on that run. I'm waiting for them to say, we're the champs. This is what we're here for. Just kind of never happened. Tell us about uh, that game because you were there too. Well, it was that again. I'm sitting in the upper deck in the first row. It was actually in the corner. I like these seats. I mean, as I said, the lowers was too expensive to sit in. The uppers, I've never seen prices. The prices of these games, and people are paying enormous for just standing room tickets. And it's a weird arena. It only it's a smaller arena, but it's very loud. Um, but it's hard. There's not a lot of upper deck seats anyway. So I, it's actually when you're in the upper deck at the arena, it's almost like you're at the loads level at Staples. You're not that high up because they only go 25 rows of the lower. There's like one set of suites, and then you're sort of, even at the Cavaliers Arena, it's like that deck thing. But it's, it gave me a great view of, of the game. But uh, it was exciting when Clay came out. So he was warming up. We knew he was going to play, uh, and he was very excited, and that got the team going. But the Warriors, you know, they had only won two out of 12 quarters, and uh, 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 but they actually this first quarter they won they got they they won the quarter twenty three seventeen the Raptors were a complete mess they could not play they did not do anything but the thing was that they should have been down like twenty but they scored seventeen points Leonard scored fourteen of the seventeen points no Raptor the Raptors did not score a field goal for the first almost four minutes of the game they were out rebounded seventeen to six. And uh, at one point in the first quarter, the, the, the Warriors were up 11. And that was like almost the high watermark, I guess, for the Warriors. The rest of the next, uh, the next two, uh, this game, you know, the, the rest of the game, it was just a, a disaster. Looney was back in the game also. He played great with six points. And Clay Thompson started out, made a bunch of baskets, and it was, it, he played great. Uh, but, then, uh, uh, but then in the second, second period, the Warriors started having a lot of trouble. The league got cut down. Uh, Curry was missing shots left and right, and Ibaka for the Raptors started scoring. So the lead was only cut by four at halftime. Both teams were terrible. The Raptors were two for 15 from three. The Warriors two for 13. Clay had 14 points. Curry at eight. But the Warriors had nine turnovers. But the third quarter, and this 
I'm telling you, it was the deciding quarter because, again, you're waiting for the Warriors to make that run. And the Raptors said, we're done with the runs. I know you had four runs against Portland. I know you took us in game two. I know you guys love this run in the third quarter. I know you're the greatest third quarter team. They just, they just pounded. Um, they went on it. They, they outscored them by 16 points in that quarter uh, to really just dominate that. Um, the Raptors going into halftime were down four. Leonard make two threes to take the lead in the first minute. And after that, it was just, I mean, the Warriors were hanging in there. Clay made a couple threes, but it was 64-63 uh, Toronto with three minutes to go in the third. So they're still in the game. It's still close. And then Clay got, was out of the game, and that was one problem. And then also the, the, the Raptors were in a bonus, and Leonard makes it two. Kerr called a timeout, and out of the timeout, the Warriors messed up, and Leonard got the ball and then made another two, go 69-63. And then Quinn Cook, who I've liked a lot, and I thought he played great, went on a stretch where he had, he'll regret this the rest of his life. He missed two shots, had two bad defenses. Abaka made a shot. Abaka made another shot over. It was, and, and it was Cook's man. And, and, and Cook missed actually three shots in a row. And suddenly this lead is 12 points. They lost total control of that game. So they're up by 12 going into the third quarter. And, uh, and then right when the quarter starts, you're like, okay, they're down 12. They're down 2-1. This means everything. Van Fleet comes in and hits a three. So suddenly they're <laughs> up 15. And, uh, and Clay hits a three, but then the Warriors miss four, four straight shots. They, the Raptors take a 16-point lead. And it was just, it was, it was pretty much at the end of the game. It, it was, game I mean, over. by again, again, reserves were in it by the end. Siakam played well. Um, I was, I was upset that, uh, that a lot of fans left. I mean, this could have been the last game at Oracle when people were leaving uh, the stadium. Uh, it was just really weird to see that. You saw that in St. Louis when we talked about the Bruins and the Blues game. I just don't know if you're a fan of the Warriors, how you leave a game. Even if they've lost now two games at home, you've got to support your team. You've got to stay to the end. Um, Leonard had a monster game at 36 points. Again, 11 for 22, 5 for 9 from threes. Uh, the rest of the team played terrible. Lowry, 3 for 12. Green, 1 for 8. And Fleet. But it was really uh, Leonard and Siakam and Ibaka. Who, uh, who, who played phenomenal. And the, and the Warriors, I mean, Curry, he had 27 points, but he, had, he was not two for nine from threes, didn't make any big shots. Thompson played phenomenal. I mean, he had, he had 28 points, only took 18 shots, but had zero turnovers. Looney came in and played good, but Cousins was horrendous. Four turnovers, six points, a total mess, couldn't play good defense. And uh, it was just a terrible loss, and, and, they're, and they're, down, they're going down uh, 13, uh, down 3-1. Um, and it was just, it, you know, they're singing, all the Toronto fans came out of the game, they're singing, oh, Canada, they're celebrating. Uh, and then I'm used to being at the Warriors games, you can buy your merchandise afterwards and pins and shirts. I mean, it seemed like they just wanted everybody out of the building. Like, they, would, they shut all the stores off. They shut everything. They're like, get out. We don't want you here. Usually their concession people were so happy and nice and friendly. They were just in a bad mood, throwing everybody out of the arena. Uh, it was really bad. It was like the last days of Rome, because now this has been five years to go to the championship. But it was, it was the end, and it was, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it was really sad. You know, Ira, what's interesting about the NBA is – I feel like 90% of the talk in the media is not actually about these finals. It's about what's going to happen in the offseason, the draft, and free agency. What do you think? You know, obviously, KD's slated back tonight. What do you think? How has this um, affected Kevin Durant's legacy, though, um, just being out for these, you know, month or five weeks, whatever it's been, and having them go down like this? You think this helps him? You think it hurts his legacy? You think he's leaving town regardless? What's your take? I I don't. I. Still think Kevin Durant 
I, it's, it's a very interesting thing where he's going to go. But the fact is that this town, they love Clay Thompson. They love Stephen Curry. They love uh, Andre Iguodala. They love Sean Livingston. But they do, and they love Looney. But they don't, Cousins, they don't like. <laughs> and, and Durant, like you see all these jerseys. No one was buying Durant jerseys. Nobody was wearing Durant jerseys. He's been two-time MVP. No one's wearing his jerseys. Everyone is, but they're not criticizing him. I want to say if Durant didn't play and he was in New York, and this was a situation I think the fans would really turn on him. Oh, you know, like, wait a second, you've got to play. Well, uh, uh, Willis Reed played. He came out. Uh, Derek Jeter played. I mean, they would go through all the history of these New York athletes that played when they were hurt. Um, he has a calf injury. I think the Warriors did not handle this right. They said that he could be back or not back. It was all this maybe, maybe. If they would have just said, look, he might make the last three games of the final and then, and then brought him back early, that might have been better. But that put pressure on Durant. And the question is, I, I do think that now Kevin Durant has a chance. And this is what I love about sports. Kevin Durant has a chance to just skyrocket in terms of legacy. Because if they're down 3-1, they look like they're dead in the water. The ship is totally sinking. But if he can come back and he can go back from 3-1 to win a title, then suddenly he passes all these other all-time greats. Then it's no longer that Kevin Durant could win at Oklahoma City. It's no longer that Kevin Durant will just decide to go to a team that had won 73 wins and he only picked winners. It's that Kevin Durant led a team that was down 3-1 that looked terrible back to the final. I mean, it would, it would put him as one of the top 10 basketball players of all time. It might put him in the top four or five. I mean, really, he can really... I think if he comes back today and doesn't play well, they can say he's hurt. I mean, he really has a lot to gain. If he can do this, this is good. This would be tremendous, and he would just go down as like, oh, my gosh, he came back. So this is amazing. This is a great opportunity, and that's what you love about sports, that the best player in basketball could come back and down 3-1. Now, remember, when he played Oklahoma City, when he was in Oklahoma City, he was leading the Warriors 3-1 three years ago, and yep. they blew the lead mm-hmm. to the Warriors, and they came back, and then the Warriors were, da- were up 3-1 to Cavaliers, and they came back. So it really is, and this is tough. They have to go win two out of the three in Toronto, but the Warriors are great. I mean, they, they win 90-some percent of their games um, if, if, if Durant is healthy and if Clay and Curry and Draymond Green and Iguodala and Cousins they should win. I mean, there's not, the point spread is interesting. It's one and a half today. What, if everyone thought Toronto was so much better than the Warriors, and this game isn't even close, then they'd be like five, six, seven-point favorites. They're one and a half-point favorites. I think that's what shows what Vegas is looking at. They know the Warriors are, are with healthy, a better team than Toronto. But Kevin Durant's legacy, this is, this is key. I mean, there's three games to do it in one week. If next Monday we're talking about the Warriors being champion, everyone's looking at Kevin Durant. It's completely different than what he looks at like this week. This is the most important week of Kevin Durant's life. I agree wholeheartedly. Before we move on, Ira, what happens tonight? I, I want to. I want. I want to think the Warriors are going to win. I, I think. I don't know if it's my heart. I don't know if it's my. I. I think. I think this team's going to do it. I think that. The, I think the Raptors are playing. I think Nick Nurse, their coach, has pushed every right button. He has played great. They in the in the game three, they put Van Fleet in the second half, even though Danny Green was shooting great. They play on Curry. Nurse has they've come back. They've shown to make adjustments. They made adjustments against Philadelphia, adjustments against Milwaukee. They have played smart. They have played the the brilliant basketball, everything. But I think the Warriors can do this. Uh, the Warriors have been down this. They're not afraid. This whole on-the-road thing doesn't concern them. They're okay. I think the Warriors come back and win this game. I think they need to go back. I think I, I, I'm, I'm going to say they're going to win this game. they go back to Oakland and win, and there will be a game seven. 
And if, if Durant is playing that well, then they, they, they should win it. I, I, I don't know if I'm hoping it or if I'm thinking it, <laughs> but I, I think the series is far from over. I think the Warriors have a lot of fight left in them, and I don't expect them to lose tonight. 729, Ira on Sports, 95.9, the true oldies channel. You know Ira's at all these events he's talking about. You can follow on Instagram with his escapades at Ira on Sports. Alex Reamer from WEEI in Boston joins us at 745. Ira, you know, I, I didn't know all that much about tennis before I started working with you and, and you know, talking a lot about it on this show. Of course, you knew the big names, but I, would, I had no idea who Dominic Thiem was. But I think a lot of people are going to know him after this weekend, even though he didn't pull off the win at the French Open. But tell us uh, this whole backstory. Well, Thiem is the, is the young player. I mean, right now, we have the greatest time. I've said this again and again, but this is like Brady and Montana playing at the same time with Johnny Unitas. Are Tiger and Jack playing? Are Bonds, Ruth, and Aaron? Are LeBron and Michael Jordan? I mean, the last 10 majors have won by Federer, Joker, Nadal. They've won between them now after Nadal won the French Open 2018 and 15. Um, they have, it, it, Nadal's won four, Djokovic three, and Federer's won three in the last 10 years, the last 10 titles. Um, this is, in 2012, Federer won Wimbledon, and he went three years without winning, and then he comes back and wins three more. This is just, they're 37, 33, and 32. Um, Sampras' last title was when he won, which was 29. John McEnroe, we think is so great, won it when he was 25 years old. Uh, Nadal just won his 12th title. Borg, who when I grew up said, Borg is by far the greatest play court player of all time. He won six French titles. Nadal's won 12. I mean, understand the numbers. Connors, Lendl, Agassi, they won eight total. McEnroe, seven. So that just shows you, we're watching Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer at a level that's amazing. And there's going to be, they're older. They're going to not be around. So you keep waiting for someone to come up. Dominic Thiem is tremendous. If you watch that final against Nadal, that first set, he lost 6-3. Probably one of the best played. Even Thiem said, I play great. How many people do you know play 6-3 and lose and say, I played great. I don't think I could have played any better. That's amazing. And he's, he's in the finals and he just beat Djokovic. That just shows you the level play Nadal. Going into this match, people kept telling me Nadal's lost a step. I was like, what? He hasn't lost any step. I'm saying this. Nadal of Sunday would have beat Nadal 10 years ago, probably 2-2-2. Two, two, and two. This Nadal does, is, hits the ball 10 miles an hour harder. He is as fast as he ever was, and he's smarter than he was ever was. He is volleys against Steam. He was 24-27 at the net. He, his serving is much better. The old Nadal 10 years ago would just try to get the serve it, but whenever he needs points, Nadal can actually win the points. This is, you're, we're watching, this is, this is it. I mean, this is as good as you can get on clay. We'll never see another player better than him. And Dominic Thiem, unfortunately, now lost to Nadal. It's interesting. Thiem lost to Nadal last year in the finals in straight sets. He took a set from him this year. He beat <laughs> Nadal in Barcelona uh, and took two sets out of three. And then I saw them at the U.S. Open live last year in a five-set, four-and-a-half-hour match. Then Nadal won, but he was so exhausted after he had to retire against El Poto the next match. That's why Thiem is clearly the next guy. But he has to, it's hard going to be. I mean, he got through. It's asking too much to get through Djokovic. And then have to beat Nadal. Yeah, Actually, exactly. they had to play Djokovic over three days almost. And then he had to go because it was rain delayed, another rain delay they played on Saturday, and then having to play Nadal. I give Dominic Thiem a tremendous amount of credit. I thought he played great. I thought he had a great tournament. I think he's going to be an all-time great player. And he probably is going to win five or six majors. 
But right now, we're seeing you know the greatest uh, players of all time. I mean, the fact that Federer in the quarterfinals beat Wawinka, who is a three-time major champion, that was a great match. I mean, Federer lost to Nadal easily, six three, six four, six two. But I thought he played. You know, it, it's like you're losing Nadal. This is his surface, and I thought Federer hadn't played in three years. Just look great. And everything that Federer's game is around, getting the three points on the serve, meaning he just wins like on aces. He can't do that. It was very windy. Um, it, was, it was just difficult for Federer to play. And uh, I thought, I mean, I thought he played well to lose to it. But, um, but I mean, he was in that first set, and Nadal just was able to break Federer and, and win that uh, and, and, and win that match. But the theme Djokovic, it was over five days. Djokovic complained about everything. The weather, he actually walked off the court. It was raining. They took a break, and he just supposedly just went home. He didn't want to play anymore, and they didn't want to default him in the tournament. But he was down 6-2, 3-6, 3-1 in the second. Uh, to two sets to, and one set to one, and he was losing in the third. They came back the next day and played, and he was complaining to the umpire about the shot clock. I've never seen Djokovic like, lose this, his, his focus, his energy, everything. Theme just... We just outplayed him. And then even when he won the fourth set, 7-5, I was like, okay, Djokovic's got a fourth set. But in the, in the fifth set, Thiem was at 6-5-6. At six, six. Djokovic's ready to go. They're, they're serving. They don't have a tiebreaker. And Thiem breaks him and wins 7-5. And it was just total shock that, uh, that Djokovic lost the Thiem uh, like that in the fifth set. But that's, that just shows you how great Thiem is and what a great player that, that Djokovic, who won the last three majors, uh, defeated him. But it was, it was just a – the way Thiem plays, he just hits the ball so hard. He moves so well in the court. I mean, those points were tremendous between Nadal. Each one would hit shots that other players would just never be able to get the ball back. But they would both use their footwork, their positioning. Everything was, was, uh, was amazing. I was, uh, I was just tremendous. And the interesting thing about the Nadal match, every time that Thiem broke Nadal, which is only two times, Nadal immediately broke back. I mean, and what was interesting about that match is that – after Nadal lost the, the set seven five seven in the in the in the second set, he comes back and wins. Boy, he wins in the third set. He won the first twelve points, sixteen of seventeen points, and was up four zero in twelve minutes and won six one. And then came back in the fourth set and, and still won six one. So it just shows that Nadal it like woke him up that he finally lost the set in the finals. He had to, had a lot. His record at the French is 93-2, and two. <laughs> and in the last 15 years, he's won 12 titles, and one year he didn't play. Uh, but it was just, just amazing. I mean, he won seven of his 13 break points, the theme only at two of six. And uh, Nadal won 45% of his receiving points, which is just tremendous to think that he was winning all these points, not even serving. Uh, and uh, it was just a, it was just a, great, a, great, win for, a great win for Nadal. Um, he has 18 titles now, uh, Federer has 20. I'm interesting. A couple of years ago in the Australian Open, he was up 4-1 in the third, Nadal over Federer. If he would have won that match, they would be tied right now at 19-19. Um, but they asked Nadal afterwards, they go, are you obsessed with Federer? Do you want to get catch him? And he's like, I'm playing great tennis. I've been hurt this year. I had to, I had to withdraw from the US Open. I couldn't even play at Indian Wells. I, I've been injured this part season. I haven't played well. He goes, this meant a lot to me. I've been injured this whole year. And to come back and play like I did, uh, I'm not worried about Federer. I'm just happy I won my 12th title. So it was, uh, it was great to win. And now in three weeks, we got Wimbledon coming up. All excited about that. You want to touch on uh, women's real quick, or you want to slide into the NHL? Well, we, we, can, we can go next. Oh, well, women's. Oh, yeah, women's. Uh, the women's was not that... It, the only thing I'll say about the women is Ashley Vardy of Australia is a good young player. She actually, what's interesting about her, 
is she played cricket. She was a cricket player. Really? And uh, in Australia. And so now that she won the tournament, she's, she's, uh, she's excellent. But it was a weird tournament. Usually the French have people that are coming out of nowhere win this tournament. The Americans didn't make it to even the semifinals, except, uh, but Amos Nova um, is a young 17 year old American who had a great run in the tournament and people, Amanda Amazova, and it'll be interesting to see how well she does. She has a lot of potential, hits well, but as we've seen from Americans in the past, I mean, everyone's trying to be the next arena. It's really hard. And, uh, <laughs> but there's so many good young American women tennis players, unlike in the men's side, that you got to think that, uh, one of them is going to break through and, uh, start. I mean, the Keys and Stevens are phenomenal players. But again, they, they weren't even, they consistently don't have the consistent where they're going to, they're not neither in the top, uh, they're not in the top five in tennis. So it's, uh, it'll be interesting. But Ashley Barty from Australia is good. But we can, yeah, we could definitely start to go talk to the NHL. Let's talk about the NHL. By the way, you're listening to Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel at 737. <clears throat> Alex Reamer from excuse me, WEEI uh, Radio in Boston joins us at 745. A lot to talk about with him. Ira, this NHL Stanley Cup, the ratings are not great as far as Stanley Cups go. I, I'm not exactly sure why that is because you've got two fairly big fan bases in St. Louis and Boston uh, I'm in this, but this cup has had everything you could want as a fan um you know dazzling goalie play intensity and my favorite thing ira is that not even period to period but shift to shift it's hard to tell who the better team is and i've counted out st louis twice in this series and i've counted boston out twice in this series as well regardless we're going down to the wire tell us how we got here well, I think it was 2-1 um, Boston. They seem to have more control of the series. Every time you think you're right, every time it looks like someone has control of the series, and the Blues then won game four at home, 4-2, to tie the series 4-2. Um, this is a game that was marked by Chara, the, the captain for Boston, got knocked out early, bleeding all over the ice. And uh, unlike Randy, he comes back the next game. Actually came back, he broke his jaw, and then still sitting on the bench, which was trying to give his team... Uh, he was writing the, the to the team, reporters. It, in the in the the next game, what? he was writing to the reporters what his responses were because <laughs> he can't talk because his jaw's wired shut. It's amazing. It, it is true, and and Ryan O'Reilly, who hadn't really scored one of the stars for the Blues in uh, in uh, in eight games, scored the first goal and uh, and the last goal for them. I mean, the 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 one goal that the uh, that the that the Bruins had was on a power play. I was on a shorthanded goal. Uh, which was uh, which is amazing. The Blues have allowed four shorthanded goals, and that's what's really saved Boston. This whole their power play has been tremendous. And uh, but in this game, Bimington, everyone's talking about what a great game he had. Twenty-one saves. Uh, a for Boston, thirty-four saves. But it was just one of those things where in the third period it was two-two going to third period when O'Reilly scored. Uh, his second goal with 10 minutes to go, and they just held on to win to go up 4-2. But I think what – and then everyone's like, okay, well, that's okay. A lot of friends that are Boston fans will go back to Boston. They're going to win game five in Boston uh, and then either win the cup in Boston or go back to seven. And Chara played, so he got a loud ovation. And uh, the Bruins started that game crazy. Nine-to-one shots on goal to start the game. Uh, but uh, um, but it was zero zero early. But Riley scored uh, the first goal for uh, uh, for for St. Louis again to go up one nothing. And uh, but it was interesting at the end of the first period, uh, Rask was out of position and the Blues shot it, but uh, Krejcik stopped it. Just stopped, you know, just ran in front of the goal. It was one of the best saves ever. And then uh, but it was uh, it was it was the game was totally marred by the fact that it's one nothing. 
in the third period with 10 minutes to go. And the Bruins were, uh, uh, Tyler Bozak was tripped. Uh, Atari was tipped, tripped by Bozak. They don't call the penalty. He's lying. The Bruin player is lying on the ice, uh, just holding his head because he fell down. It wasn't a flop or anything. It was clearly a trip. It was a, it was, it was a trip in any sport, whether it's a clipping in football, whatever sports you want to say, clearly a trip. And then they, uh, they swore to go up 2 nothing. So not only did they, it should have been a penalty on St. Louis, they actually took advantage of the situation to score the goal and go up 2 nothing. And, uh, that was, uh, that was, uh, you know, one of the, uh, uh, one of the worst calls. And that's in this, and hockey's been plagued by this this year in terms of these weird calls. It's been inconsistent. Nobody knows what they're calling. A trip on one possession. It's, it's not been a good, I mean, even in Boston's, uh, management is just, criticizing it but st louis is criticized too it seems like what people are very unhappy with with i mean like this past year in the nfl it seems like it's now in hockey with the officiating i mean the nba sort of got a break a pass a little bit they haven't had these bad calls whereas in in hockey and football this has been more totally marred and then uh game six boston goes on and 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 uh and it goes to St. Louis. I mean, everyone's talking about St. Louis is going to win the cup for the first time. Boston has no chance. This is the time. The headline in the newspapers they already had. They had run the papers where St. Louis is winning. The cup is there. Uh, but uh, um, but it was weird. They 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 scored. The, the, the Bruins scored a power play, one nothing in the first period. Uh, then Bimington gives up one of the softest goals you could imagine mm-hmm. uh, to Carlo two minutes in, into the third period, and then uh, they go three zero, and it was and it was and it was it was really over after that. And it, and uh, but uh, so now we're left with the 17th game seven in Stanley Cup history. Um, the Bruins won the last one in 2011 in Vancouver in Game Seven, and they're hosting. This is weird though. They're the, they're hosting. Every other original six team has hosted a Game 7. This is the first time Boston has ever hosted a Game 7, which is uh, pretty interesting. We'll have Alex Reamer on here in just one second to talk about uh, all this and more. Um, Ira, did you know one of the things about Boston, you know, you can mock them. You know, I'm a Yankee fan. And, of course, there's always, oh, you know, big rivalry. It's really not. I I think it's a lot of educated fans, and the cities get behind them completely. Did you know, and and I really like this, that the Red Sox moved their game up on Wednesday to a 4 o'clock start to make sure that everyone in Boston didn't have to decide what to watch. They could just uh, just be ready to go for the Bruins. Well, as I said, the Boston fans are extremely low. I'm in L.A., Sonny McLean's, I mean, this bar in Santa Monica, uh, lines out the door. People, everyone in the bar is wearing a Bruins jersey. Um, they, they definitely, their fan base is just loves this team. I think this team has captured the town. I mean, any team that's in the Stanley Cup Finals usually does, but they're very loyal. And, and you're right, the teams, uh, they do it definitely. If you're a Boston fan, you're rooting for the Red Sox, you're rooting for the Celtics and the Bruins and, and the Patriots. But uh, it was, uh, it, it definitely is a, a situation where the, where the, I think the town is rallying around the team. Yeah, the Mets would never move a game for any of the other teams in New York. I'm just saying. Uh, well, we've been talking about him. He's going to join us right now. It's Alex Reamer from WEEI in Boston. Alex, thank you mo- uh, so much for joining us again on Iron Sports. And uh, Ira, what do you have for Alex? Hi, Alex. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Sure thing, guys. How are you? Good, good, good. Um, first, I just, you know, on, on sad news, really, um, David Ortiz, I mean, we're watching the Bruin game, and uh, uh, you get the news that, that, that he shot in the Dominican Republic, and the words, the, the words were just coming out. I mean, the news was just coming out during the game. Nobody really had the facts of what happened. And uh, now we hear that it was just a, a random shooting, and he's being flown back to Boston, and he will survive. 
but um, talk a little about uh, how this is a, you know, maybe a little about what David Ortiz meant, meant, means to Boston and what he's, you know, why he is so beloved by so many people. Well, I mean, it starts with the three World Series titles, face of this team, leading the 04 comeback. I mean, you know, one of the best clutch hitters of his generation. But the reason why he's so beloved is because, and this sounds simplistic, but he just seems to be a really good guy. He is revered by all. You saw it whenever he played. I mean, we all made fun of the uh, season-long retirement tour he had for being a bit over the top, and I still stand by that. But, you know, there's a reason why every single team in Major League Baseball felt it was appropriate to bestow gifts upon David Ortiz because he is so respected and so loved throughout the game. He's done tremendous charitable work as well with David Ortiz Foundation. And, you know, that speech he made after the marathon bombings in 2013, this is our effing city, Ortiz really embodied what Boston was feeling at that time. And it's so amazing, guys, because, you know, this is an infamously parochial area, and yet this outsider, Dominican-born, you know, came here as a relatively unknown who was sitting behind Jeremy Giambi his first year, and he really has become one of the most iconic athletes in the city's history. I mean, the only guy in his stratosphere right now who's still active is Tom Brady. So uh, it really is incredible, and you see all the support. And well, I mean, even Barack Obama tweeted his well wishes for David Ortiz today. I mean, that just shows you how revered he is, not just in baseball circles, not just here in Boston, but nationally and across the world as well. Well, they're flying him. I think that uh, it was, you know, the, the Red Sox had a press conference. They said, we're taking the team plane. We're flying it down. He's going to be transported to Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, one of the best hospitals in the world. So, you know, hopefully now he'll get the best care and he can make a, you know, as much as he can make a full recovery from it. So we're, you know, everyone's thoughts and prayers are with him. It's just a terrible tragedy uh, to happen. But on, I guess on another note, um, you're in Boston right now, and, and, and you have a Game 7. And I, as I just mentioned, it's the first Game 7 that Boston's ever had in the NHL Finals. And, and all the other original six teams have had it. So just give me a sense of, of what the mood of the town is, and, you know, especially when they thought that maybe it was over on Sunday you know, when they're going to Game 6 in St. Louis. So what, what is the mood in Boston right now? Um, well, I mean, they had a Game 7 against Vancouver in 2011, but haven't hosted a Game 7, which is why uh, right, ticket, host, the average right. ticket price is like over 2K for this thing. It's unbelievable. You'd think at this point, we've seen so many titles, uh, you know, there would be a bit, of, a bit of championship fatigue, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, you know, obviously people are pumped up. Uh, you know, I think people took the Blues lightly heading into the series, given how well the Bruins played at the end of the Toronto series and then steamrolling through Columbus and Carolina. Um, but no, people are optimistic because two things went well for the Bruins in game six. Tuca had an unbelievable game and has just continued an unbelievable run this postseason. That's number one. And number two, the top six forwards, Bruins' top two lines were scoreless in five-on-five play, really outshined by the Blues. Uh, they got on the scoreboard in a big way last night. Pasternak with a great goal, Marshand with a goal, and those guys had been invisible up to this point. So uh, I think Bruins fans on the whole are feeling good. Yeah, the lift that Char gives them as well, just uh, somehow, some way, playing through this broken jaw. They gave it back to the Blues a little bit too yesterday too. Uh, you know, hit them back and had the penalty kills. So uh, I think a, very, a real dominant uh, road win for sure to set up Game 7 uh, Wednesday night. I mean, Boston has been great on power plays this whole season, especially in the playoffs, one of the highest percentages in the history of the NHL. 7 for 21 this playoffs. The Blues are only 1 for 18. I mean, it's going to be interesting finals. I mean, 
you know, it's a game seven. I mean, do you expect, especially the referee, you know, there's been questionable calls. Is this going to be one of the type of game where they just swallow the whistles and it's going to just be a free fall? Or do you expect, well, they're, you know, where Boston might again have uh, a number of power plays in order to use their advantage of in the, in the special team? We'll see. I, I don't know if uh, this has been made official yet, but I know they've been rotating referees and actually the refs who would be in line to work Wednesday in Boston were the same guys who were there for game five and missed the Atari trip and the blatant uh, headshots as well earlier in that game. So that should be interesting. I mean, uh, you know, it's a, the first three games, Blues were penalized uh, 16 times. Craig Berube then complains, he whines, and then games four and five, the refs really swallowed the whistles for St. Louis. Game five was so egregious, guys. I mean, in the first, in the first period, you have, uh, you know, Stanford and, uh, you know, throwing elbows at the Bruins' heads, not getting called for penalties. And then Marchand, uh, you know, in a scrum in front of the net gets called of trying to put the, trying to, you know, like get the puck loose. So it was pretty blatant there. Uh, you know, who knows? The NFL officiating has been terrible all postseason long. I think Bruins fans just want some consistency. You saw it be a little more even handed uh, last night, and I think that's, uh, I think that's all they can look for. And Chara coming back after having his jaw broken. We just had started the first uh, part of our, my show talking about Kevin Durant and all the injury, and he's been out a month with a calf strain. And then you see someone on the ice bleeding blood all over the ice, broken jaw. They're breaking up. And, and uh, talk about what, what, what he's had in terms of for, 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 for the Bruins when coming back so quickly, just not even missing a game. Yeah, I think we lost Alex there. He was saying we were having some connection issues while you were speaking, Ira. The guy deserves a medal, Uh, and not Alex Reamer, great guy as well, but Zdeno Chara deserves a medal in Boston for all he's done for that team for over a decade now. He has to be the oldest player in the league, oldest active player. To go and get your jaw just destroyed like that and come back without missing a beat when we see guys like Paul Pierce get taken off the court for um, for cramps. It, you know, it's just absolutely crazy, you know, the difference between those NHL players and, uh, you know, really every other sport in the world. And that's why they've got my... Um, Utmost, utmost respect being uh, NHL guys. We might be getting Alex back on. We're uh, holding on for that one, Ira. But, yeah, I mean, can you think of a, of a performance like that? I mean, we were talking about Willis Reed earlier, but nothing really comes up like that. And I do think that we um, I do think we have Alex back on now. Ira, what, uh, what, what else did you have for Alex? Sorry, Alex. You were just talking about Chara in terms of what his the motivation in terms of he gave the Bruins by coming back and, and actually sitting even after breaking his jaw, coming back to the bench at that time and sitting there right on the bench. Yeah, I mean, it's, been, it's, it's certainly a really unfathomable thing to do. I mean, you saw him on his presser Saturday prior to Game 6 last night. Guy can barely speak, and he's out there playing a lot of minutes and giving it right back to the Blues, too. I mean, last night he was checking Shen. I mean, he really uh, has been physical um, no, it's, it's unbelievable. I can't even fathom it. I mean, part of me does feel a little gross. I mean, watching it, it's like gladiator-type stuff. I mean, you do feel a little uncomfortable, I guess is the word, but obviously it's his decision uh, that's as a team captain. I mean, his leadership has been so incredible this postseason. This is a guy who doesn't even like calling rookies rookies. He likes to call them first-year players because he likes to promote the team concept. He's just an unbelievable leader. He's lost some steps on the ice. There's no doubt about it. He's a little slow. But uh, he's certainly still a big, big addition to this team. And, yeah, he's uh, certainly gutting it through. 
One of the interesting things from watching the games from my perspective is that I couldn't believe how hard St. Louis was hitting and in the first couple games. I mean, it was just – now, a lot of it I thought was cheap hits. I mean, they certainly are the – they have the art of, like, putting people's heads into the glass and not getting calls. And then it was funny when the general manager said and their coach said, well, we're the least penalized team in the league. And I'm like, how are they getting away with all this? But it seems that now Boston has sort of – they have sort of matched this intensity that St. Louis was bringing uh, earlier in the series that they are actually hitting back hard too. And they're not, they're not being intimidated by St. Louis if they were even intimidated at all, but just they don't seem to be as intimidated as they were earlier. Yeah. I mean, you saw last night, the Bruins took what four penalties and that's fine because they're perfect on the penalty kill. You mentioned earlier how St. Louis has struggled on the power plays. Do you want to see that for the Bruins? They're guys, they're getting bullied their first five games of the series. Pasternak in particular, um, and, yeah, they fought back in a big way last night. And in terms of the goalie, I mean, you're talking about Rask in terms of, uh, uh, of, a, of a game seven and how well he's done in these closeout games and, 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 and his record in the closeout games. And now you have a rookie, Bimington, who has had a good, you know, very good season, very good year. But it's one thing to have this great, great year, but to be a rookie goalie in a game seven of the Stanley Cup finals, uh, he did give up a couple soft goals that in game six. Um, you you have to be uh, more confident as a Bruins fan with your goalie than than St. Louis's goalie going into this game seven. Yeah, the Carl going the Carlo goal in particular last night was really a soft one, went right through him. Um, yeah, I haven't been that impressed with Bennington to be honest with you. He played uh, terrifically in the first period of Game Five, but outside of that, haven't been too impressed. Like I said, Bruins have the clear advantage in net. Tuca's otherworldly right now. Uh, probably maybe the best game of his entire postseason was last night, especially in that second period to survive that barrage. Uh, so, yeah, big advantage for the Bees, especially that they're at home uh, in that. And and one last question, Alex, and, th- and again, thanks a lot sure. for coming on and giving us perspective, but I'm amazed at how the stat was that there's 21 different Bruin players that scored a goal during during the playoffs, which is, I think, the, only the Flyers in 87 had the record for most unique scores. And, I mean, that's it just shows you what they, you know, besides the, the goalie scoring, I don't know who else could score on the team. But I think that's another team aspect of, of what the Bruins have. They definitely have their stars, but it's, it seems like everybody contributes and, and, and that they'll need that in a Game 7. Yeah, no, they're they're a very deep team. I mean, uh, up until, you know, last few games at least, uh, their third line with Charlie Coyle and Marcus Johansson has maybe been their most productive line offensively or postseason. Even the fourth line led by uh, Corrali and those guys, has, uh, have their, have, they've had their moments as well. Um, it's a real deep team. The Bruins, look, on paper, guys, they're the superior team. The Blues have had a hell of a series, but I think the tide swung back last night, and I think we'll uh, see it swing back in the Bruins' favor uh, on Wednesday. Well, Alex, well, thank you. you. You're definitely, you get to cover some amazing sports in, in terms of uh, amazing teams. They're going to have their third title if they win uh, on Wednesday night, the uh-huh. third title in three different sports in the past year. And uh, appreciate you coming on Iron Sports, and hopefully we'll talk to you in the near future. Sure, guys. Thanks. Just about five minutes till eight o'clock. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Don't forget to follow Iron Instagram. Keep up with all his exploits at Ira on sports. Ira, the Belmont Stakes. We had Mike Ivarone on. He had said, he echoed kind of what my thoughts were, and that it was going to be tough for, for, you know, um, War of Will to to win this, coming, you know, running his third race in a row. We kind of threw up Master Fencer. I, though, had no 
thought. I, if I had to bet the race again, knowing the outcome, I still wouldn't take Sir Winston. That's just how improbable it seemed to me. But either way, Belmont's in the books, and this one was one, if you knew what was going on here, you made a ton of money. Well, I don't think a lot of but considering that the trainer of War of Will also chained Sir Winston. And so he was saying, I wasn't even watching Sir Winston run the race. His eyes were in War of Will. Mm-hmm. And then he realized that War of Will didn't have it. And he's like, I better look at Sir Winston. Um, and uh, it's a great time to be connected. You know, this is like the Canadian time. I mean, John uh, Cass is, uh, is from Canada. He's won the best Canadian trainer of the award for like six straight years. And uh, so clearly now he's won the Preakness winner in Belmont. He'll, he'll win it again. And even Tacticus, which was the favorite in the, in the race, it said, I was listening to their jockey, and, and it said, he, Tacticus has followed War Will, but when War Will wasn't running well, then that's what slowed Tacticus down and forced Tacticus to go, uh, to go, to go, to, um, to actually run. Tacticus maybe ran the best in terms of the fastest, but he just was running wide the entire race and started. Uh, and, uh, but his charging at the end, but just ran out of real estate. And, uh, Jovia, the, 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 the horse that people thought was just going to be the rabbit in the race, ended up finishing third because the race was so slow, uh, was able to stay third. And so, uh, Sir Winston won, Tacticus was second, and Jovia was third. Um, but, uh, War of Will was tired. I mean, we talked about this before. It, 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 it was the only horse to, to run all three, uh, races, the Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. And, uh, it finished ninth out of 10. And it makes you appreciate how great Justified American Pharaoh was. I mean, these are horses that won the Triple Crown. And now this is the third time in four years that a different horse has won each leg of, of the Triple Crown. Um, I was, I mean, uh, uh, certainly the horse, I mean, um, Sir Winston, uh, you could have bought Sir Winston last year for fifty thousand uh, dollars. Crazy, right? Had a very California it, Chrome it was, was a claimer too. No one, no one claimed it. It, it, it had only was only third race it's ever won. It's been the second out of a five horse field in the Peter Pan Stakes. Uh, in the Bluegrass Stakes, it finished seventh. It really, it only won the races it won were were very slow and not not very good quality races. Um, it was interesting though that jockey Joe Rosario, who was on Everfast, who finished second at the Preakness, switched horses, and he ran Sir Winston for the first time. So I thought that was, it was sort of an indication that maybe Sir Winston was a little bit better than people thought it was. Um, I was interested to note that, I mean, I've been to the Belmont a dozen times. I love going to it. Uh, we had Mike on talking about uh, what exciting it is. They only had 56,000 on a beautiful day. It was 75 and perfect weather, and uh, there was 90,000 for Justify. Uh, and I think over a hundred and some thousand for American Pharaoh, they, they put limits on how many, but they really did not have a, they probably had a half a house, a full of a house there. Um, and it just shows you what the excitement was after the whole mess with the Kentucky Derby and, and the Preakness and none of the horses running. But, uh, it's still, look, horse racing's great. They need more, they need more dates. I mean, the Breeders' Cup is in November and, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, we'll see what happens, but, uh, we'll maybe talk about some racing in the summer, but it, uh, it was not a, it was a season. There was, there was a lot of anticipation for the Kentucky Derby. Uh, but after what happened at the Derby with maximum security getting disqualified, uh, there was less for enthusiasm for the Preakness, which had the lowest ratings they ever had. And the ratings haven't come out yet for the Belmont, but I assume they'll be very low also. Yeah. And it, it goes back to, you know, we, we've been spoiled, like you said, with, with Justify, with California Chrome, um, having two of the three with American Pharaoh. I'll, have another we've had so many triple crown chances or successes over the last half a decade after going 
almost three decades without it, that, of course, you know, the ratings were through the roof. And I kind of anticipated this. I thought there'd be a lot more money to be made. And I think that Mikey of Arone kind of reflected that as well. And there was, obviously, if you had the foresight to have Sir Winston and Jovia in your uh, in your trifecta. If you did, you made a lot of money. Ira, let, let's do baseball real quick here. We already talked about David Ortiz and the, the tragedy that's there. I think a lot more is going to come out with this. You did mention you were um, at, at Giants-Dodgers. I'll always call it AT&T Stadium. I'm not going to switch. It's one of those like Joe Robbie. It's always going to be Joe Rob with uh, McCovey Cove out there. I got a question for you in this, though. You know, all these things happen in football. Where, ooh, you don't want to go to an away game, uh, you know, in Oakland. Or, you know what I mean, 49ers have had their issues with fans as well. The rivalry, team-wise, between Giants and Dodgers is as good as any in baseball. Uh, You know, maybe compared to the the Yankees and and the Red Sox of the West Coast. Are the fans like that when you attend a game like this? Or is it, you know, just another day at the ballpark? Mike, you made a great point. Uh, this is a great... People do not on the East Coast realize what a rivalry the Dodgers and Giants are. Now, remember, they're New York. They used to be the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants. Yeah. So they've, been, they've had this rivalry, and they just came west and at the same time. And it is a very... They had 37,000 fans of the game. And let me understand, the Giants are terrible. They are awful. They are like at the Miami Marlins level of patheticness they are horrendous (laughs) and the dodgers i mean and everyone knew the dodgers were going to win and it's like a mess and they're really the giants are rebuilding their 18 games out of first place it's a total mess for them but they it's it's like the fans they still got thirty-seven thousand fans or a lot of dodger fans but no i think it's they have a great fan base their fan base is very just like the dodgers it's a it's there are people i know who are not warrior fans they're not 49er fans but they are San Francisco Giants fans. San Francisco, in many ways, is a baseball town. And if there's few of them, like St. Yeah. Louis could be a baseball town. Boston could be a baseball town. And New York, in many ways, is a baseball town because the Yankees are so popular. Uh, but certainly San Francisco has that feel of a baseball town. No, I agree. And I think I think St. Louis is a great example there because they've had their other big teams. But when it comes down to it, everyone, you know, the the, the streets stop for Cardinals games. And we see that here in Jupiter as thousands and thousands of people spend their entire March here in Florida just watching Cardinals preseason games. It's absolutely crazy. And one of the reasons I love baseball so much. Um, U.S. Open starts this week. This is the tournament that if you're a golf fan, you love the U.S. Open. You've been to Pebble Beach a few times, I believe, and you're going to be there this week. Tell us about what you're expecting, and also uh, talk about Rory's big win over the weekend. Well, I've never been there. No, I've been to, oh, I've okay. been to the U.S. Open at the Shinnecock last year. I've been at Beth Page, and I've been to Oakmont twice. So this will be my fifth U.S. Open, but I've never been to Pebble Beach. So I'm, I'm, I'm real excited about that. It, we'll see what happens. I'll go to the Warriors game on third. I'll go to the Warriors game on Thursday, if the Warriors win. Uh, if they don't, I'll probably go to Pebble Beach on Thursday and Friday up through the weekend. Uh, Tiger, it's a, it's a weird group. First of all, the Pebble Beach is an amazing course. I can't wait to see it. It's Vivota is the most beautiful course on earth, and they've had eight different designers. Uh, the holes are amazing. Everyone's watched it. Uh, it's impossible to play there. You have to like book a room at the lodge. or two, That's impossible to book a room to even play at this tournament. Um, if they've had five U.S. Opens. Uh, Nicholas has won, Watson won, everyone remembers Tiger winning by 15 strokes in 2000. Uh, so it's, I'm excited to be there. Uh, the, we, the cast of characters is again from PGA and the Masters. Uh, Roy McIlroy shot a 61 in the final round at the Canadian Open. I mean, he's one of the few golfers that likes to play the week before. Most golfers took the week before the major off, but I, he's, 
He's he would have shot a fifty nine. He won by seven strokes, but he had a bogey on the eighteenth. Um, it's interesting how the groupings for the the golfers are. The morning groups are John Rahm and, and Rory, uh, Jay, uh, Justin Thomas and and Justin Johnson and Phil Mickelson are a group. Sergio Garcia and Fleetwood are a group. That's the morning group, and then the afternoon group on Thursday will be. Uh, Jordan Spieth and Tiger Woods are paired, which I think that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right next to them, right, like right, is there is Kepka and Molinari are in that group. So you can't follow Woods and Kepka; you have to switch up. And then they go back for the East Coast. It's going to be almost in Thursday prime time. It'll be like they're gonna they're going to uh, uh, tee off at five o'clock on Thursday and eleven o'clock on Friday. So people on the East Coast, if they want to watch golf at, at at five o'clock at night, they're able to watch them for all all night. Um, uh, the, the favorites, of course, Kepka. He's won four of eight majors. Uh, Dustin Johnson uh, had one here in 2009 and 2010, second in 2016, 2018. Of course, Tiger, uh, he missed two cuts. I mean, recently, but uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Tiger is uh, one fit by 15 strokes uh, in 2000. Uh, Rory's missed two cuts here at Pebble Beach, but after his great win, he's probably going to be in there. And uh, Jordan Spieth is playing well. Patrick Cantlay just won Memorial. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely an exciting tournament, uh, and see, and Tiger's in it. And that's all that counts in terms of making it exciting. And, and everyone hopes that Phil, this could be Phil's last chance to win, a, to win the U.S. Open. He's come second many times. So it's going to be, I can't wait to talk about it next week, uh, give my impressions of Pebble Beach. Uh, and uh, it's it's a beautiful. As I've ever watched it on TV, it's beautiful to watch on TV. I'd love to be there in person and see it. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm excited for you. <laughs> I, you know, looking at the odds, of course, they've got Brooks Kepka at the top, followed by Dustin Johnson. Tiger and Rory are both 10 to 1. Jordan Spieth is 14 to 1. You think it's going to be one of these big names that knocks this down? I mean, because you've also got guys like, um, you know, Molinari, Brent Snedeker, who turned in a 50 or a 60 um, j- just last weekend. These guys are about 50 to 1. And I think we might see an outlier here. Or do you think it's just one of these Kepka, Tiger, you know, ridiculous weekends that we all want to see? I want to. I'm sold on Kepka. I think he's playing great. I think he's again. If it was any other player that won four of the last eight majors, he'd be like this monster. If Tiger had won four of the last majors, Tiger would be like a one to ten yeah. favorite. I think Kepka's playing great. He shows that he can win these tournaments. He's won the last two U.S. Opens, the PGA. So he won Mass. I mean, the last the U.S. Opens and the PGA. He is. I think I, I was there last year at, at Shinnecock when he won the U.S. Open. He is a player that can play under every uh, condition. Anything that happens, he stays calm, cool, collected. Um, I really like Kepka. I, I, I think I think we're looking at one of the greatest golfers of all time. He's right before our eyes. He's in our prime, and we don't even know it. And I think we'll wake up one day, and he's going to have ten majors. I think this guy's <laughs> great, and I'm I would I'm not going against him. And I hope it's Tiger and Kepka in the final group on Sunday. I absolutely agree with you. I would never bet against this guy right now. You just can't do it, Ira. Um, I know you've got a busy week. Just wrap up again, real quick. Uh, what your plans are for the week ahead? Uh. It'll be Pebble Beach, or we'll see. Uh, we'll see what gold. It may be Golden State on Thursday. Game starts in 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 an hour, and then we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see if the NBA if the NBA season is over, or if uh, we got a couple more games, and then hockey is hockey is definitely going to be over on Wednesday. But this is a great week. I guess golf, uh, hockey, and basketball. The champions are all going to be crowned this week. I want to thank uh, Alex Reamer from WEEI in Boston so much for stopping by. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. We'll talk next Monday night, Ira on Sports.